You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, well, I don't know if you have uh, vivid memories of your fourth grade art projects, uh, but I sure do. Uh, I don't know what, maybe I knew I needed in an illustration one day, uh, but here we are, and it's perfect. Uh, I uh, remember being in fourth grade, I remember being in our class, and we were commissioned to uh, make a thing, and the thing was we had to paint a self-portrait. Uh, and uh, I don't want to brag, but I did pretty well. So uh, I remember the, the rule was, you know, you had to paint it, put it on the sheet, that whole thing, and then they're gonna like tape it to the walls in the hallway, and then everyone's just gonna admire your glory walking to class. And, uh, and so I tried really hard, and I think I did it. Uh, you know, I, I remember looking at it on there on the wall and going, that shape approximates to a human face. Uh, that looks like a boy, not an alien, which is more than most of these jokers on the wall can say for themselves. So I was feeling uh, really good about it. Uh, and then I went to college and, uh, and started studying art and culture and history. And as I was uh, learning about art in art history, I'm just realizing that there was a whole world uh, that I didn't know was behind these works that go on canvas, especially self-portraits. I became fascinated in, in self-portraits. I mean, what, what is happening in a self-portrait is so much more than just, uh, let me show you the color of my eyes. That's not what artists are doing. They're, they're trying to communicate. I mean, whole worldviews are being communicated on a piece of canvas. Uh, things about who this person really is deep down. I'll give you some examples. I, I brought some to show you. So uh, a handful of uh, my favorite artists and, and their self-portraits. So uh, here is the first one. This is uh, my favorite artist of all time, uh, Mr. Norman Rockwell. Uh, love this guy. This is called his triple self-portrait because he's there three times. And uh, I love it. it it's, con it's saying something immediately to you. I, I don't know if you stare at much art, but the, the first things that are coming across to me, it's just like whimsy. It's lighthearted. I mean, it's almost like the guy painted it and was winking at you while he was doing it. I mean, who, who makes this their self-portrait, right? So, so it's, it's, uh, it's saying something light and fun and celebratory and uh, quirky. He's got some of his, his influences there hanging on the canvas. It's really, uh, a really cool painting to me. Uh, here's a, another one, another self-portrait. This is a uh, Picasso, uh, charming. Uh, this was Picasso painting at 90 years old. 1972 he painted. This is one of the last paintings he ever made. And uh, totally different thing coming across, right? Uh, you look at it and m maybe you feel with me like I'm a little disturbed by that, right? You, and you don't even know why, but, but then you think about it, it's the, it's the color palette. It's these reds and the, and the grays and blacks, all these striped lines, almost looks like, like muscle sinews and tissues. I mean, this looks like a skinned skull. You have an eye staring up to the heavens in sort of desperation, what looks like a gaping mouth. I mean, this is a, it's a horrible sight in a lot of ways. It, and, and it really is, sorry, self portrait it's rough. Um, but uh, this is what he wanted to convey to the world at 90 years old about his, his view of life and himself and all these things. I mean, it's really haunting. Um, I'll show you one more. This is my favorite painting of all time. This is uh, Rembrandt's Raising of the Cross. And you go, that's not a self-portrait. That's a picture of Jesus on a cross. Uh, and it is, but it's much more than that because uh, we're going to zoom in real quick. Uh, that right there is Rembrandt. His self-portrait was to paint himself at the foot of the cross at the moment when they were raising Jesus for his crucifixion. 
And in this self-portrait, so much is being said. What, why, why put yourself in this scene as Rembrandt? If you're going to paint a self-portrait, why do this? Well, what is he saying? He, he's saying, and not only do I want to show you what I look like, I want you to know that one of the most fundamental things about me is I'm a contributor to the death of Christ. That what happened to Jesus on the cross was my doing. And so I, that is so fundamental to my understanding of reality that I'm actually going to put myself at the foot of the cross. I think it's one of the most profound paintings uh, I've ever seen, certainly. But, but you can see, uh, my, my point is that with all of these self-portraits, what self-portrait is doing is saying so much more than I have red hair, right? It is saying something fundamentally true about that person that they want to convey on a canvas. Uh, and uh, they're giving us insight, really, into who they really are. That's what a self-portrait does. And Genesis 1.27 is God's self-portrait. That is, that is a helpful way to think about what God is doing in the creation of people. That he's, he is conveying something about himself to a watching world. And what we've been talking about, what we've seen over these last couple weeks... We're essentially asking the question, what did he paint? What's on the canvas? Uh, what has he made mankind to display? So last week we saw the simple fact that it, it is a self-portrait, that we are the self-portrait. Uh, it says, let us make man in our image. We are not made like uh, the cattle or fish or bugs. We're not like that. We're something different. We are image bearers. You see it in the text. That word image there, it's an interesting word. That word image is the exact word that is used throughout the Old Testament to talk about idols, that they're called tselem, images. Now that's interesting, right? And, and don't get weirded out. It's not, it's not like we're an idol per se, but what, what it is saying is this. What is an idol? What was an idol in the, the ancient religious world? Well, it was a, it was a graven or painted uh, expression of an invisible reality. It was a physical representation of an invisible reality. And that's the word that God uses uh, here when he says, that's how I made you. I made you as an image of me. That you are expressing something about the invisible God just by you being you. So when we say we're in the image of God, we're saying who, who we are says something about who he is. And, and, and as Christians, here's the conviction that we have. We want to say true things about God with our lives, with everything we do, with, with our personhood. We want to say true things about him. So we need to look at what God wants to say about himself and our creation. Uh, how has he designed mankind? Well, what brush strokes has he sort of used? What has he put on the canvas? What has he left off the canvas? What are those decisions he's made and what does it say about him? What's important to him? Now we get a major clue about this in the six words we're really focusing on today. Male and female, he created them. That's what we're looking at today. Male and female, he created them. What did God have in mind by making us male and female? What do you have in mind? And how is it important for us as we live as gendered image bearers? So it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know this is like a, a live topic right now in our world, right? Like these issues of gender and sexuality, all these things, very live, it's, it's on the front page. And, uh, and so let me just kind of pull over for a second before we plow ahead. Uh, I took a little bit of time last uh, time I preached to, to do something similar and just make an appeal to us in the room and at home. 
that what we need most today, it's what we need every Sunday, but uh, we need it today, is humility. Yes, we need humility. Um, a Christian is someone who says, I am going to let God's word define the terms, define reality. I'm going to let God's word define me. I don't get to define those things. That's God's job. And, and let me just say, there is a really good chance that at some point in this sermon, every single one of us are going to be triggered about something, okay? This is an equal opportunity offensive message for everybody in the room. Uh, and I, I just want to say this, um, that don't despise that. It's not a bad thing. It's actually a, a good thing. If you don't regularly feel triggered when you're reading your Bible, you're not reading it right. Because I don't know if you know this, but the Bible is, is calling you to all the things that your flesh hates. The Bible is calling you to things like dying to yourself. That's not like a hot go-to item for us, right? Jesus, following Jesus means dying to yourself and saying things like, God, you get to decide everything. I, I'm going to let you do, I trust you that much. You've never failed me. And so on this page, I'm a yes. Because on the page before, you, you, you didn't fail me. And the next page, I'm a yes. And the next page, I'm a yes. I let you define me. That's what we're doing this morning. With that being said, is, is that fair? Those are the terms. That being said, now we can uh, start getting into the text. Now, I want to show you three things. That's, that's where we're going. Three things that it means to be created male and female. Our design has something profound to say about three things. Theology, equality, and identity. Theology, equality, identity. That's where we're going this morning. So if you have your Bible, get it out. We're in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start by looking at verse 26. It says this. Then God said, let us make man, and we're in the theology uh, portion right now. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so uh, Rod uh, did a great job last week of pointing out uh, that there, it, there is a profound theological statement being made in our creation. You remember that? That that being made in the image of God, that he's, he's saying something theological about himself, that, that God is more complex than just a singular person. Verse 26, then God, singular, said, let us, plural, make man in our image, right? So in some mystical way, there is both singularity somehow and plurality in God. That's what we've seen from the beginning of the story. That, there, that there's one God who then said, let us make man. So in, in some mystical way, that, that is happening. Now, if that's true, which it is, we have a problem, right? And the problem is this. If you happen to be a, a being who is both singular and plural at the same time, mysteriously, and you happen to be painting a self-portrait, how do you paint that? What goes, on the, what goes on the canvas? Do you see the problem? Like, how do, you, how do you convey that? How do you go about expressing plurality and singularity? Answer, you paint more than one painting. You paint two, and you make the paintings equal. 
which is exactly what God did. Verse 27, listen, so God created man, singular, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, plural. So, so God makes male and female to say something to the world about himself. And the thing that he is saying to the world in us being created male and female is this. I am not just a unity. I am a community. That's what he's saying. In, in your gendered existence as male and female, you are saying something theological. You are saying to the world, all of us together, God is not just unity. He is community. This is really big news. Every time you embrace your gendered existence, that is what you're communicating. Whether you like it or not, believe it or not, God is community within himself. Here's the point. Uh, let me say it as clear as I can. We picture God best as men and women together. That's how we picture God best because he made us to do that. You don't have the full image of God with just one sex. That is, that's only half of the portrait. That's the point. Now let me bring this down to, to uh, us in our own lives and in our cultural moment that we're in. This is um, the main reason why same-sex relations are wrong biblically. It's because they are not telling the truth about who God is. Because what's happening in same-sex relations is it's an undermining of sexual distinctions in that they make singular, man, man, woman, woman, what God has meant to be plural, man, woman. You see that? And those distinctions, the text is saying, aren't just biological distinctions. They are theological distinctions. A man and a woman's sexual diversity coming together is saying something beautiful about the plurality and the unity of God. It's saying something about that. And so it's actually a theological reason that the Bible gives for why it rejects homosexuality as a viable expression of sex. And our, our, we, we want to tell the truth about what God's like and, and this is the way to do it. And our sexuality has a way of conveying that. Now, I actually think this argument uh, it, it rescues us from the endless debates among uh, conservatives and progressives about uh, the homosexual issue, right? Uh, we want to debate about, was the sin of Sodom, um, sodomy? Was it that thing or was it just greed and, and uh, moral evil? What, what did Paul have in mind in Romans 1 uh, all same-sex relations when uh, he banned them or was he just thinking about man-boy relationships and coercive relationships? Was he just talking about that? See, all of that, do you see, it actually misses the point because the point is homosexual at its core undermines sexual distinctions and it says to the world God is not community he's only unity that's the real issue it's saying something untrue about God our distinctions aren't just biological they're theological and we want to be people who tell the truth about God 
So there's deep theology happening right here in, in Genesis 1:27. God's creation of man and woman has something profound to say about who God is. Theological truth is being conveyed. But it's not just uh, that this creation of man and woman as gender beings has something to say about theology. It has something also to say about equality. So theology and now equality. Uh, what do I mean? Well, I, I wonder if when you read uh, Genesis 1:27, if it feels to you as like shockingly disruptive and progressive as it very much was to the culture of that day. So, uh, first off, historically, the only people who were ever seen in ancient culture as bearing the image of God, you know who it was? It was the kings and the emperors and the pharaohs. That was the only people in any historical literature that's ever acknowledged as being in the image of God or the gods. And yet here, in the first book of Genesis, what do we see? We see God saying, it's not just the king who's in my image. It's the king and all of his slaves. It's everyone. Every human being has the exact same dignity and worth and value that's bestowed on the person highest up in the cultural strata. And we're getting that in Genesis 1. It's flipping the whole world's sort of social economy on its head just 27 verses into our Bible. I mean, this is wildly subversive stuff. And then it goes even deeper than that because at least men have some degree of dignity historically in culture. But women... Women in the ancient Near East, they, they were seen largely as property. They were just a notch north of dogs. I mean, this is how an ancient Near Eastern person would have considered women. And here, what do we see? We see God just said, men are made in the image of God. Yes and amen. Comma. And women are made in the image of God. Do you know what drives me crazy? When, when atheists want to go to war with Christians over our Bible being like chauvinistic and subversive to women, I don't understand. I'm like, what, what book are you reading? Because can you think of any book out there from some religion where the first chapter of it says that women are divine image bearers co-equal with men reflecting God's glory and image? I mean, that's, that is breathtaking. And that's the first chapter, y'all. The word of God bestows so much dignity on all people, male and female. It's profound. And let me just say to you, if you're a woman in the room, you are not less than. I don't know if you've ever thought or felt that or if culture's made you feel that way, but you're not a notch down. You are co-equal, co-valuable, co-all of those things with every male in this room. And you can really be proud of that, proud of God's good design for you. And I don't know if that feels like a gift to many of our women in here, because maybe in the modern West, that's sort of a settled issue. But can I say this? To millions and millions of women around the world, this is not a settled issue. And this is a profound statement about their dignity that they, they need to hear. This is just one of a million reasons why world missions matters, by the way. Because folks need to hear that they really are made in the image of God, both male and and female. It's a profound statement that's happening here. 
Now, let me, uh, let me deal with an objection real quick, uh, because some of you, if you're, if you're savvy about sort of Stone Gates theology and that sort of thing, maybe a, a flag's coming up and you, you got a question and you're going, Man, isn't, uh, I hear all that, Jimmy, but isn't Stone Gate a complementarian church? Aren't complementarians uh, like kind of down on women, oppressive to women, like want to squash their opportunities and that sort of thing? If you don't know what complementarianism is, prepare to be schooled, people. Um, uh, let me just unpack that a little bit because it is true. Just so you know, uh, our, our theological position at this church from the, from the pastors down is going to be that we, we hold to complementarianism. But what is that? What is that really? What do we mean by that? Let me give you a quick definition. Uh, I'll unpack it. We'll talk about it for a second. Uh, here's a very easy, clean way to talk about what we mean when we say uh, God has created men and women um, complementary or uh, complementarianism. It would be this. Complementarianism is sameness in worth, difference in role. That's all it is. Sameness in worth, difference in role. That God made men and women equal in worth, in dignity, in value. And he has given to each of us differing roles to play in the world he created. That's all it means. That's all it means. That when we look at the scriptures, we see equality of persons and we see that in the home, God has commanded men to be the leaders and head of their family, to lay down their lives for their wives and children. And women are called to lovingly respond to his leadership. It's Ephesians 5. It's what we see in the text. Sameness in worth, difference in role. That, that when we look at the scriptures, we see equality of persons and we see that within the local church, God has commanded men to provide pastoral leadership and bear the primary burden for, for the teaching and shepherding of God's people. While women are to leverage all of their beautiful giftings to care for and shepherd God's people in the church through the hundred other avenues that the local church provides for them to do so. It's, it's 1 Timothy 3. It's, it's Titus. It, it's sameness and worth, difference and role. That in the home and in the church, there are unique roles that each of us carry out. That's what we mean. If, if, if you want to think about it like this, God is the coach. And he's made you the pitcher. And he's made you the catcher. And as we embrace our roles on the team, we win the game. That's complementarianism. And, and let me just uh, say this uh, before I move on. Uh, it is not required for you to be complementary and to be a member of this church. You don't have to hold to that. Uh, this is an open-handed issue. We can debate about it over coffee and I'll pay. It'll be fine. Uh, that, that's not, uh, that, the, the stakes are not high here, but we see this as being important, valuable. We see it from scripture and so we hold to it. And, and let me just tell you the, the primary reason why we hold to it. It's theological. It's saying something about God, we believe. What is it saying about God? Well, it's expressing something about how the Trinity interacts within himself. How so? Each member of the Godhead, we're going to go some Trinitarian theology, so buckle up, kids. Each member of the Godhead is perfectly equal. We understand that. Father, Son, Spirit, they are co-equal, co-eternal, co-God, fully God, right? That's what we've believed. But functionally, they each perform different roles. We see this all throughout Scripture. We see this as it unfolds with, uh, with salvation. God the Father is the great purposer. He has hatched the plan to rescue mankind. God the Son is the great purchaser. He came to earth. The Father didn't come to earth and die for you. The Son came to earth 
hung on a cross and died for you. That's not the father or the spirit, it's the son. That was his role. He's the great purchaser and the Holy Spirit is the great perfecter. He's the only one who dwells inside of you, keeps you to the end, sanctifies you into the image of Jesus. It's not the father who indwells you, it's the Holy Spirit. So they're, they are perfectly equal in their ontology, but in their function, they have different roles. And what's happening, we believe, in the scriptures is God is giving a little play uh, for us to perform as men and women where we get to display that, that interaction between the Godhead within our roles in a complementarian way. That's what it is. So complementarity. Uh, we live out our roles as men and women uh, and when we do, we tell the truth about God. So. Uh, creation, you see, this is deep stuff, guys. Creation has, of, of men and women has something to say about theology. It has something to say about our equality and, and how we interact within that. And then finally, last thing, God making us male and female in his image says something about our identity. And this is where we're going to camp for the, the rest of the time. Okay. Uh, uh, let me just say, uh, we are in a unique cultural moment. I said it earlier, but uh, we're in a moment uh, in time where issues of gender and identity and sexuality uh, are right front and center. I mean, there's, not a, there, uh, there's hardly a news article that, that doesn't touch on this these days. It's, it's in our lives, it's in our community. We are, uh, some of us are dealing with these issues personally. Some of us are family members of those dealing with this. This is a, a very live question. And, and the question that many people are asking today is, is simply this, who am I really? Who am I really? Now, our culture has a ready answer for us, right? What many today are ready to say is something like this. If you experience discontinuity between your outside design and your inside sense of self, the inside is telling the truth. You go with your inside. It's how we can have statements like this, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, or I am a man trapped in a woman's body, which is another way to say, my internal experience doesn't match my external reality, and I'm siding with my internal experience. Now, there's a term we've uh, uh, coined for that uh, internal experience, and it's called gender identity. You've heard that term, gender identity. It's a way to talk about the me that I truly am on the inside, despite what my body might say. These are live questions. This is very, very real. and, and I want to ask the question, how do we handle this as Christians? How are we to think about this biblically? Uh, if your inside and your outside don't seem to agree, which one wins? That's the question. And, and does God's word have anything to say about it that would be helpful to us? Well, I think the answer is yes. But before we go there, I just want to, I want to pause for just a second and say a couple things up front. First off, uh, one, this is a really difficult topic. Agreed? And I have 13 minutes and 12 seconds uh, to get through it with you. Uh, and uh, you'll uh, hopefully uh, give me some grace here as I don't cover each of the nuances that are trying to be captured in this. There's a lot to say. I'm going to be right down front at the end. If you want to talk more with me, uh, first service I was down here, I had great conversations. Would love to talk with you. But I'm not going to be able to capture everything you might want. 
So just saying that right now. Now it's 12 minutes and 47 seconds. <laughs> Number two. We need to acknowledge this. Church, we have often failed the trans community in some really horrible ways over the years. We have either, in a, in a spirit of wanting to be loving, abandoned the truth in this book and we've sold them a bill of lies about their God and who they are and it's destroying them. Or, in our zeal for the truth, we obliterate our opponents with our awesome arguments and our cold shoulder, totally forgetting that on the other side of this debate is a real human being, really made in the image of God. Who, who has all the dignity and worth and value and image-bearing of any other non-trans person in the room. And we have failed at this so often. Preston Sprinkle, uh, he writes in his book about uh, his friend Leslie, who uh, was born a girl and just struggled her whole life because from, from a very early age, she always felt more like a boy than a girl on the inside. It led her to all sorts of depressive places. She got suicidal at one point. Now, she grew up in a churched context. So when she hit her teenage years, it was really uh, just at a tipping point for her. She didn't know what to do, so she went to her pastor to get guidance and counsel. And she sat down with him in his office. And what she got was not guidance. What she got was this. Leslie said, my pastor escorted me out of the back door of his office and told me never to come back again. And she didn't for 18 years. And that should break your heart. Truth doesn't require the abandonment of love. And love doesn't require the abandonment of truth. And to those in the trans community in this room, watching at home, I just want to say this. I'm sorry for the ways that we've failed you as the church. And I'm so glad God made you. And I want you to know this man, Jesus, who the scripture says of him is full of both, both grace and truth. He's both of the things. And where we have failed as the church, he has not. And I hope you'll listen in these next few minutes and test the words of this book, not the opinions of people. Okay. How are we to handle this? How do we navigate this theme? Who is the real you? Can Genesis help us? I believe it can. And some of what we'll see might even surprise you. The first thing we see is this. Our bodies are central to our identity. Our bodies are central to our identity. Now, I get this from the text. God does not have in mind from this passage, our internal gender identity when he made us male and female. He had in mind our gendered, sexed bodies. How do we know that? Well, for one, Moses immediately connects our creation with the task of 
procreation. So it says, he, male and female, he created them, verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it says God makes them male and female. And then the very next verse says, now go have babies, right? You cannot have babies using a gender identity. You have babies using a body. God has in mind your gendered body when he is telling you to walk out this command. That God designed your body to be central to your identity according to Genesis 1. And this truth that we see right here at the beginning of scripture actually runs straight through the rest of your Bible. You're going to see it all the time. Let me just take you to the New Testament to, to show you. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he's dealing with themes around this. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. He says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. I wonder if you heard it. Did you see how he interchanges his terms all throughout? So at one point, he's talking about your body, and the next moment, without batting an eye, he replaces your body with you, just you. So do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, then you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So he sees our bodies as the very same thing as our very selves. Do you see that? To honor God with your body, according to Paul, according to scripture, is to honor God with yourself because your body is the real you, according to scripture. Your body really is you. And it's so much you that when you go all the way to the end of the story that God has planned for us, it's you in that body forever. I could take you to a lot of places, but I'll just take you to Romans 8, 11, where Paul says this, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies as well. T to be a Christian is to not believe that when we die, we go uh, depart from our body, float up in the clouds, and just live up there as Casper for the rest of our lives. That's not that's not what a Christian believes, that, you just, that you're just Casper. That is not Christian theology. Christians understand from Scripture that one day when Jesus returns, your very body will be resurrected, reunited with your soul, and you will be an embodied person with a physical flesh, a embodied, gendered, sexed person forever, for all time. The body you are in now will one day in a glorified state be yours permanently forever and ever gendered. Just like it is now. That's a profound theological statement. The, the point is this. Our, our bodies that we're given by God, they really matter. Do you see it? From the beginning of the story, if you take it all the way to the end of the story, you're still in that thing. It matters to God. He doesn't get rid of it in the end. He preserves it and keeps it and refines it. It's how we determine who we are according to Scripture. Now, listen, I, I say all that and then I recognize this is difficult because as I said before, there are many folks today who don't experience things like this. They don't experience the world like this. What their design shows them and what their inner experience tells them are two different things. This is where I'm hoping to provide some clarity here because, and listen to this, because though our bodies are central to our, den, our identity, 
the stereotypes about our identity are not central. Let me say that again because that's the, the next point. Though our bodies are central to our identity, we've seen that from the scripture, the stereotypes about our identity, not central. Let me show you what I mean. We'll do a thought experiment. Uh, I want you to answer the question in your mind, what does it mean to be masculine? Not what does it mean to be a man? Because if I said that, you would just appeal to our bodies, right? That's what scripture said. But what does it mean to be manly? What does it mean to be masculine? Get some words going in your head. What, what, what would you say to somebody who asked you that? I took a crack. I didn't wrote down some words here on the page. And uh, maybe these are some of your words. Maybe you can kind of go noble and you, and, and you think leadership is an attribute of being manly or masculine. Maybe uh, uh, strength is one. You can get a little bit more grunty and go sports, right? Just throwing stuff. Uh, barbecue, bl bloody meat, that's masculine. Explosions, uh, not sharing your feelings. Maybe these are ways that we are masculine. I don't, I don't know, right? But well, where did you get that from? Where did those, 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 are, those are all floating around in our head. You laughed because it's true, right? They're floating around our head. Where did we get it from? Our parents maybe? Watching TV, some movies, uh, Social media, the culture, news archive—that's we're, we're appealing to cultural norms, aren't we? But is that is that fair? Is that fair to to say that's what manly is? That's what masculine is? It may be true of many men, and largely it, it is. What guy doesn't like a good explosion, right? But is that what it means to be masculine? Take me for example. Um, at five years old, my favorite toy was a Barbie. I asked for one from my parents. I think they got me a He-Man for Christmas instead. Uh, my favorite artist since I was a little kid uh, is Whitney Houston. Because it's Whitney Houston. Why would you argue with that? I don't understand. I, I was in a singing, dancing talent group from age 11. I, my, when I was in high school, I wanted to be, when I grew up, a professional makeup artist on Broadway. That's what I wanted to do with my life. I, I like candles. I love charcuterie boards. I love Downton Abbey. Because it's fabulous. Not the paragon of masculinity, right? Or is it? Or is it? Is there room for someone like me within my gendered body? And the answer is, well, it, de it depends on who's defining the terms, right? Our culture or the Bible. But if we let the Bible define our terms for a moment, what do we see there? What do we see about, about masculinity? Let's, let's look at it. For, let's, let's take somebody like King David. King David, who knew his way around the battlefield, yeah? I mean, he could sling some stones, he could chop off some heads. I mean, he was doing the thing, right? There was some war happening with him. And he wrote most of the poetry in your Bible, weeping half the time as he did it, right? He wrote poetry to his best friend, Jonathan, who he said the love of Jonathan was better than the love of a woman to him. His favorite instrument was a harp. <laughs> what about women? What does it mean to be feminine? What comes in your mind? 
all sorts of things, maybe sensitivity, softness, sweetness, flowers, stilettos, I don't know what, if stilettos are in there for you, uh, but where do you get those images and ideas and what, what makes that Let's go to the scriptures and let's ask, what what does the scripture have to say about femininity? Well, well, what does it say? Uh, Let's go to a classic spot, one that we're we're sure to find a a, a biblical woman. Let's go to the Proverbs 31 woman, right? That's the archetype. Let's find out what she's like. Well, uh, here we go. This will settle it for us. Okay, well, we see she's a, a, a wife. We see she's a mother. We see she's spending time raising kids. That all fits nicely in the feminine bucket, doesn't it? But then, oh, wait! She's also running a textile company. In verse 18, verse 16 says she's buying real estate. She plants a vineyard. This woman's Robert Mondavi, just like cork and bottles over there. Verse 15 says she takes the night shift. She provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. This is a hustler, y'all. She is a working woman. Feminine? Sure. It's in the scriptures. Stereotypical? No. No, it doesn't fit our cultural stereotypes, does it? What's my point? My point is this. The Bible's borders for what men and women are are very narrow. There's just two genders and they're defined by the bodies God gave us. But the Bible's borders for what men and women are like are very broad. They're very broad. And they can accommodate all kinds of people who don't fit into cultural boxes. Meaning, there's room for you. There's room for you, man, who actually has human emotions and cries and likes deep conversations and the arts. There's room for you here. There's room for you right in the body God has given you. There's room for you, woman, who is a natural leader, who has great business skills, who enjoys the the game more than the halftime show. There is room for you in your gendered body. There's space for you to be you in that. The Bible's borders for what men and women are like are broad. Now, hear me. I didn't say they're non-existent. There are borders, right? The Bible condemns things repeatedly, like cross-dressing, Deuteronomy 22, 5, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. We've already addressed the issue of homosexuality. So it's not that there's no borders. There are absolute borders, but the borders that are there are broader than what our culture has told us. Because our culture is selling us a lie, man. It is selling us a lie that if you're a girl, but you've got masculine preferences, you must be a boy. You must be a boy. That must mean you're a man. And no one ever raised their hand and just went, hey, who defined masculine preferences, by the way? Who, who defined those? And the Bible says, there is more room here than you think to express yourself as a biblical man or woman than our culture says. You can be you and embrace the sexed body God gave you. You can do that. You can do that. I, I hope this is helpful. And I, I hope that it's, uh, I hope it's freeing for some of us. Our culture has not served you well. But our God has. And he intends to. And in fact, that's exactly what our God did. Which is why one night in, in a little city outside of 
Jerusalem, a biological male child was born to a teenage girl named Mary. And in that moment, God did the most radical thing that any, anyone could ever come up with in their minds. He stepped into his own self-portrait. He stepped into embodiment and he did it, the scripture says, for you. And do you know what the Bible calls this man? You know what the New Testament calls him? The image of the invisible God. There's our word from Genesis 1. Jesus became the image of God. The God himself became the image of God for you. Why? He took on a body for you. Why? So that he could have a body that could die for you. So that the nails would have something to run through into the wood. So that the, the crown of thorns could actually scrape down onto a human skull. So a sword could actually slide into his side. Do you see, God took on a gendered identity to save us from our sins. Embodiment is central to the Bible. It's central to God. And when he raised from the grave, he didn't raise a ghost. He raised bodily, which means Jesus is embodied just like you forever. He will always be who he was on earth forever. That's how much he loves you. To, to come and identify with the painting so much that he became the painting. That should blow your mind and explode your heart with gratitude that this God will become embodied to die for your sins. And will you have them? Will you take them? It's our only hope to embrace with our whole self, God's whole self for us. And if you do, can I tell you that the great joy of the world is you will get to live embodied with him in his body forever. <laughs> Glory. What a gift. I don't want us to miss it. Grab hold of him and grab hold of and embrace the person that God's made you to be because it honors him and tells the world the truth about him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we so need you. This is deep water, Lord, and uh, it is... Uh, in many ways, thin ice as well. And Lord, we just, we, at the end of the day, we are saying we want to side with the living God, not us, not ourselves. And Lord, isn't that the call, God, of, of every Christian? Not just folks in the trans community or folks dealing with homosexuality or, or for any of that. It's every Christian is being invited by the gospel to die to themselves and to live to Christ and to his value system and in his kingdom. And so God, would you help us all to die good deaths? Paul says, I die daily. Would you help us to die today? In whatever thing you set before us, that you're calling us away from our flesh, away from the culture and, and, and towards you. Whatever it is, God, help us to have the courage to say, I'll follow that man. 
because that man put on this body and bled out for me. And he's worthy of my praise and my affection. He's worthy. We love you, God, and we can't wait to lift our praises to you. You're so worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen.